been a few years. But I'm in my head. I travel constantly, so half the time I don't know where I am. Um, didn't I fly? Yeah. <laughs> I was lazy. Um, so, yeah, so I just had a nice little, yeah, it was like 3.45. Well, it was about four hours with stopping to go to the bathroom and fill up, to fill up and fill out. Um, so it took about four hours altogether. So, but it's good to meet you all. And um, so what I'm actually going to do this uh, evening is I'm going to kind of just tell stories. And in doing so, you'll kind of get to know me a little bit better, know my story, know the story of some of the ministries that I work with, and kind of get an update um, in the midst of it all, and show a couple of videos that I've got embedded here, so hopefully this works well. So I'll just start out with um, kind of just telling my story. So um, actually just two weeks ago, I just went back to Boston, so my where I grew up, South Shore, Massachusetts, I went back for a funeral, my Probably my best friend as a teenager just passed away uh, from cancer. And so I was um, not raised in the church at all. I was just super nominal Catholic at best. Um, parents got divorced when I was like 11 or 12, and then we just stopped going entirely. So I was just, you know, kind of your typical 80s kid raised by his divorced mother who's, you know, trying to put herself back through school and get her life back together. And in other words, I raised myself. I had zero oversight. And again, from Massachusetts, just going back, it was just like they just listed all these people that I was friends with and grew up with that have died of drug overdoses. Like it's just a addict's wasteland. And um, I was just sort of a you know typical little street punk, selling weed and you know just living a hedonist lifestyle. I didn't know any better. Like for me, I didn't have I had zero moral guidance. Well, I had a real powerful. Um, conversion experience at 19. Um, won't kind of tell the whole story with that, but it was it was just a radical, dramatic, sudden transformation. And, um, and, and in this fairly small, tight community, it sent, you know, big shock waves and ripples and everything. Um, and uh, so shortly thereafter, I was going to an Assembly of God, which was um, south of Boston. And there's a missionary that came who was a um, Assembly of God Wycliffe, and he was working in Kazakhstan, so over in Central Asia, and he's working with Muslims among the poorest of the poor. And he laid out the concept of the unreached peoples of the world. So I'd never heard such a thing. I'd never heard the concept of the 1040 window, which is just longitude, latitude, a part of the world where the overwhelming vast majority of unreached peoples live. They live within this sort of window, the 1040 window they call it. You know, you'll hear this a million times in missiological circles. And he, he basically explained that in, among those who are unreached, the, the average number is, it's roughly one missionary or one evangelistic Christian for every 400,000 people. In other words, the chances of someone being born, living and dying without ever hearing an effective explanation of the gospel, um, that would be considered unreached. And then in the midst of that, he explained that Muslims at the time, again, this is like, say, 1991, were 48.5% of the total unreached world. So you're talking of the, all the peoples in the earth that are unreached, half of them were Muslim. And at the time, we were sending less than half 
of 1% of our total Protestant missionary force to the Muslim world. And, you know, for me, I was just very pragmatic. I was like, okay, like you open my eyes, Lord. I should definitely be in jail or dead or in hell, like, or, you know, some combination thereof. And this is where you need people. And he gave an altar call. It was just sort of traditional Pentecostal altar call. If you feel the call of the Holy Spirit to give your life to the Muslim world. And I really did. I didn't quite understand why. I didn't understand anything about Islam. To me, it was just like, you know, Hindus, Buddhists, um, Muslims, you know, they're just different false uh, religions. And, um, you know, the thing uh, uh, with, you know, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, they've been fighting for centuries. But, you know, the thing with the Hindus, they don't have any beef. Right, that's a joke. All right, so, right, so uh, I've got I've got some great dad jokes, but um, anyway, so they, they just all you got to slip it in with a straight face. Can I stop real quick? Yeah. Hey, just while we're telling jokes, um, if you're having a hard time hearing, we have seats up close. If anyone would like to sit closer to here, is it, can you guys hear in the back? Or might do I need to up it a little bit? Right. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> huh? I have seats is what I'm saying. If you want to scoot closer, we have the whole front row. Sorry. That and I'll, I'll be more deliberate as well. <laughs> so um, in any case, I knelt down. I committed my life to the Islamic world. I had no idea what that meant. To me, it was just one of another series of, you know, another false religion. But I knew that's where we needed people. It was just that simple. I was like, Lord, I should be dead, but you saved me. And if this is where you need people... I'm signing up. And I, again, I didn't know what that meant. So I began my sort of five-year process, my five-year game plan to get educated. The idea was I was going to go to Kansas City at the time before IHOP existed. I was going to go to their little Bible school. My idea was I would go there and get the Holy Spirit. And then I would go up to Bethany College of Missions, which was a missions college up in Minneapolis, and then go to the Middle East. That was my plan. That was the plan that I felt the Lord gave me. Um, but then I moved out to Kansas City, and then I always just say life happened, which basically meant I met this incredibly beautiful woman, and just, you know, like next thing you know, you get married, babies, and this, that, and the other thing. And the first, really, year, we were just a hot mess. We were just, like, fighting like crazy, and it was miserable. And I was like, you know, maybe I'm not mature enough to raise a family in the Middle East. And, you know, got a job, and like I said, babies are coming and so forth. Next thing you know, I, you know, I started my this business that was doing really good, and I dropped out of college. Um, so I'm kind of summarizing it. But fast forward to 9-11. Okay, so throughout the 90s, I'm working, raising kids, just doing stuff. But I gave myself to do an online ministry to Muslims, which was volunteering, doing email correspondence, for different ministries and so when you do that what it really boils down to is you're arguing with Muslims Muslims love to argue like they approach theology like they approach jihad you know like let's do this and they're looking for someone to argue with but those were incredibly the, 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 that was really my seminary more those years of just you know hashing through the hard stuff and Muslims are very intelligent you know majority quite educated and they're trained like to them, we're like Jehovah's Witnesses. You know what I mean? We're like, oh, here comes a Jehovah's Witness. Or at least, you, you know. And they're like, here comes a Christian. You know, here's my chance to use all the arguments that I've learned. And, uh, and this sort of thing. So out of that season, 
I was very familiar. Like I had really for years studied and poured into understanding Islam, its relationship to Christianity. 9-11 happens. And all of a sudden the whole world's looking at Islam. Buying the Quran became a bestseller for years. For like three years straight, the Quran was the number one bestseller. And the way that things are in the United States is we've been trained to be very open and um, you know, so everyone was suddenly like, what's Islam? You know, 9-11, they're like, what's Islam? They're like, well, I want to give it a fair chance. I'm going to study. I'm going to read the Quran. I'm going to go to the local mosque and start listening. And unfortunately, we're very open, but we don't always have a sort of critical ear. And what Muslims often do, what they're very good at doing, is they don't start out by extolling the wonders and the, the, the greatness of Islam. They start by tearing down Western civilization. Oh, so you guys are Christians, huh? Yeah, well, let me ask you a question. Um, here's a picture of some Christian you know, worship leader. Do you think she's dressed like someone in the Bible would dress? And you go, oh, yeah, there's a lot of immodesty. in the ch-. And, like, they tear down Christianity. They tear down the West. And, and unfortunately, we, you know, in the West, especially the United States, this is what we've been trained to do is flagellate ourselves. You know, every new Democrat president comes in at least, travels the world apologizing for, on behalf of America. You know what I'm saying? So you've got this incredibly, like, weak culture with this incredibly confident culture. And in any case, for probably three years after 9-11, the emails that I started getting were, they were not Muslims asking questions, they were Americans and Westerners and oftentimes Christians that were in the process of or considering converting to Islam. And I was like, you're kidding me, like, you think it would be just the opposite, but Islam experienced massive revival in the West for a solid few years after that. And that's when it really just started clicking with me that Islam is not just another false religion. It's incredibly powerful, seductive. It's a powerful counterfeit. And so then out of that season, um, you know, all the books that I'm reading, I started just reading out of my own interest what they believe about the end of the age, the end times. And then in 2003, 2004, I wrote my first book, which is a comparison of what does the Bible say about the end times with what does Islam teach. And one thing leads to another. Again, I'm painting houses. This was my job, raising babies. And all of a sudden, I write this book. I use a pen name. Joel Richardson's actually not my real name. And, um, uh, you know, because I had been using a pen name, everybody that was working for these different websites that wanted to be missionaries that are writing against Islam online, everyone's using a pen name. When I wrote my first book, um, my wife Amy was just like, that's fine. I was like, you know, this could get us in big trouble. She's like, that's fine. Just use a pen name. So that's the birth of it all is, why do you have a pen name? Because my wife told me to. So um, I'm a very submissive husband. So um, in any case, here's these years of just, it was like I was watching people commit spiritual suicide. People were raised in the churches converting to Islam. And that's when I, just sort of this call to Islam really was solidified in my life. Okay, so next thing you know, I write this book. Now, most people that write self-published books, first-time authors using a pen name without any promotion, they put it on Amazon, it sells five copies, and then their mother buys 20, and they got 200 200 books in the basement, and that's it. My book sold 15,000 copies the first year, and it was just crazy. Like, it became this sort of underground bestseller. A few years later, it got republished, actually ended up becoming a New York Times bestseller. But all this to say is all of a sudden all these invitations start coming in. All these people want me to come and speak at churches. And I was like, 
you know, I was happy in my little private world just arguing <laughs> with Muslims and all these people. And it turns out that I'm uh, a halfway decent speaker. I mean, at least I can pull it off most of the time. And, um, and so all of a sudden, you know, my world starts changing. I develop this platform. You know, I'm, I'm gaining this platform. And from my perspective, I'm still the stupid former weed dealer living in his mother's basement that the Lord saved, and I'm going, now I have this platform, so I want to steward it faithfully, because it's not my plat. this is the Lord's. And so what I've done over the past 20 years is I've, understanding my bandwidth, my capacity, is I've tried to champion a handful of ministries that I've, folks that I've become friends with, that I believe in, that are working in that part of the world, because I live in Kansas City. You know, I don't live in the Middle East. I call people to martyrdom from the comfort of Kansas, you know, and, but I partner and I do my best to partner with those that are doing the real stuff that are, that are doing all of this. So I'm going to highlight four ministries that I work with. Um, I'm going to zero primarily focus on FAI, but I'm going to hit on all of them. So the first one is I squared. So it looks like it's I two, it looks like 12, but it's I squared. It's a horrible name. Um, it was like a bad branding idea, but anyway, I squared ministries and what they do, well, I'll highlight, I'll highlight all four. The other is Antecessor Rapid Response, FAI, which is Frontier Alliance International, GCM, which is Global Catalytic Ministries. I'm going to kind of hit on each one of them. So, Technically, I'm under I-squared ministries, so Joel Richardson Ministries is actually a project, so what that means, not that you guys care, is they do all my bookkeeping, and when people send me a check, it goes through them, and then I tithe to them for, um, for helping me out with doing all the bookkeeping, and I don't have to do all of the paperwork. That's the idea behind it. But what they do is, the guy that is behind I-squared, his name's Josh Lingle, and a lot of people, I don't talk about him a lot. He is like the most laser-focused guy that I've ever met who has a vision and who has been focused on his vision has not deviated for the past 20 years since I've known him. And so what he's, what he's done is he's created roughly 30 or 40 different classes. Each class is like 10 classes, 10, 12 classes long, like a university level class. And with each one of these, like he covers every issue that you can imagine. So his vision is that every Christian in the earth Every Christian, now he focuses mostly on Africa, Asia, Latin America, because this is the part of the world where most of the stuff is actually happening. His idea is, he goes, I want every Christian to be thoroughly equipped to evangelize Muslims, because he understands that Islam is the greatest challenge that we will face before the return of Jesus. Like It is the greatest Goliath of them all, and he's trying to equip the church. So let's say he goes, just... Anything, anything you can imagine, Islam and woman, women's issues. He'll go, who is the best person in the world that I know that can teach a university-level class on Islam and women's issues? He'll go there, record them, and then he'll translate it into like 30 languages, super high quality, and he puts these out, and he, so he's training. And um, just so here's some, some um, statistics and facts from the website. Right now, we're at about 1.85 billion Muslims globally. So there's about 2.2 billion Christians. That includes Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. So you think of that 2.2 billion, there's probably less than a billion born-again believers. I mean, Protestants, I think it's like actually only like um, 900 million or something like that. So then you think of, of Protestants, how many are actually born again? So the reality is Islam really 
probably is already the world's largest religion, um, depending on how you calculate it. And of those, one, almost two billion Muslims, let's say half of them actually pray and practice their faith. But you're dealing with, in so many ways, the clash between two houses of prayer. Islam is a house of prayer that's praying to the wrong God, looking for God in all the wrong places, and we're actually a much smaller number, and our job is to reach them. There's a lot more statistics here I won't go over, but here's just um, a, uh, a map of the most, the, the nations in the dark orange are the nations that experience the worst persecution for Christians in the world. Now, there's something that um, I'm always harping on, which is what I call the Israel centricity of the Bible which is to say the Bible is first and foremost primarily written with, the, with Israel as the center of its context. Everything happens in Israel, right? Jesus is there, all the prophets are there, and that's also the epicenter of what, this is where he's coming back to, to rule the world from. It's not a coincidence that the worst persecuting nations in the world surround the very spot that Jesus is going to come back and rule the world from. This is where all the great battles of the last days primarily are focused, right? So number one is Afghanistan. I think number two is North Korea. Um, number three, oh, um, Somalia. Four, uh, Libya. Um, Yemen. So what would that be? That's Somalia, Djibouti. Yeah. Um, in any case, you're talking some of the, the worst, most persecuting for Christians in the earth, and they all seem to be congregated in this area, and this also happens to be the heart of the unreached peoples of the world, which is why we're not sending quite as many. We're sending a lot more Protestant missionaries now, but st still not nearly as much as we should. So here, here's um, I Squared Ministries. That's their website, i2ministries.org. Just a quick shot of some of the, he has what he calls conferences or congresses, um, again, primarily in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where he's just connected with every major denominational leader you can imagine, like literally like hundreds of thousands, and he has been just focused for the past 20 years on educating, training, um, the, the global south is what they're called, to be equipped to rise to meet the challenge of Islam. So there's I-squared. I want to shift to Antecessor. So Antecessor is a guy named Nathan Graves. And I've actually got, real quick, uh, so I actually co-wrote a book with Nathan called uh, The Mystery of Catastrophe. And we're dealing with, um, the subtitle is Understanding God's Redemptive Purposes for Global Disasters of the Last Days. Now, Nathan and his wife, Lorraine, were young missionaries that just got thrown into the fire as young missionaries, young kids, and they moved to Albania during the whole Balkan Wars, so the breakup of Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia and all the wars, the Balkanization uh, during the Clinton years, and it was basically a genocide. So the word Balkanize, it's like actually a new word. Um, that we use in the English language, which means to break up into increasingly smaller and more hostile units. So you had former, again, the Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia breaks up. Now you've got, you know, where's Melania Trump from? Um, Slovakia, Slovenia, Serbia. You know, like most Americans, we have no idea. Anyway, it's Slovakia. 
and um, all of these, right? Like, you know, Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Greece, um, Macedonia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just incredibly divided ethnically, racially, um, religious part of the world. And everyone hates each other, including even the Christians. And I met Nathan when he invited me to a conference. Uh, I don't know how long. It's been several years now. And we had it in Macedonia, which is just sort of in between Albania and Greece. And what was amazing to me was this guy, who I had never met, set up this huge conference where he invited all of the main Christian leaders from every Balkan nation. And he had, it was 50% Baptist, 50% Pentecostals. Like, no one does that. No one can do that. No one can pull that off. And they all came together, and there was like, out of like eight boxes in the back, these cages where they were doing spontaneous translation into all these different languages. And it was the most beautiful, unified conference I'd ever been to. These are all people that hate each other, and you know, that normally hate each other. And there was a little bit of tension here and there. But um, mostly it's because those guys were liberal. There was a few liberal guys that showed up, and they were not happy, especially with me. Um, but anyway, um, it was just a beautiful conference, and I walked away from it going, this is a special guy. Here was the, por- here was the purpose of the conference. How can we all work together to reach Muslims? Because the Balkans are basically 50% Muslim. And it was the first time in the history of the Balkan, the young Balkan Protestant church, that they said, how can we reach Muslims? How can we really rise to meet this challenge? I was like, this is historical in many ways, and it was powerful. I said, this guy's amazing, so I want to partner with him. So I started partnering with Nathan. He has a ministry called Antecessor Rapid Response. Again, he and his wife were thrown into the midst of this genocide. He tells stories of going into people's houses, and you could just, all you could smell in the neighborhood was dead bodies. And he's ministering to people whose like, wife is saying, you know, my neighbors killed my husband and made, like, my kids drink blood out of his skull. You know, like, this type of, like, brutality. And they're like, and we're trying to encourage them to forgive. You know I mean? Like, the gospel in, like, just brutal, horrific context. And then he and I started really working together after the conference when all of the refugees from the Middle East were pouring up into Europe. Now, they were pouring through Eastern Europe. Now, a lot of people would be like, well, we're against refugees. And I go, fine, you can be against refugees. They're, they were coming. The bottom line is they were pouring through. So Nathan mobilized all of the churches, a whole bunch of churches in the Balkans. And I had them on my, my YouTube show. And literally, we just put out a call. We raised $60,000. Now, the budget for Antecessor each year, it's like, seriously, I, don't, I think it's like 40000 a year, like a very small Baptist ministry. And so he took $60,000. He bought micro SD cards and some other things and they loaded the micro SD cards with the Bibles in Afghan, Arabic, and you know all the different languages, Farsi, that's Persian, Iranian, from all the main languages that people were coming from. And so as these this these trains of refugees were moving up into Europe, they would stop along the way and say, hey, we've got, you know, we got hot chocolate. Um, We can charge your cell phones. Would you like a micro SD card that has the Bible in your language, has some other Christian literature in your language? And he said 98% said yes. So, and we bought these from China, so we got them dirt cheap, loaded up tens of thousands of refugees, got Bibles into their hands, many of them for the first time. 
And then there was a lot of churches in Europe that said, we actually want to receive the refugees when they get here. And so they'd say, and here's the addresses of churches. When you get to Germany, this church would like to meet you and help you. So it was just this beautifully organized thing. I went, I love this guy. But so out of that season, he developed antecessor, the purpose of which is to train the church to rise to meet the challenges of these great moments of crisis, such as that refugee crisis. Well, and then what just happened, right, at the Afghan refugee crisis. Now, I'm going to tell you an amazing story. So um, this was a big deal for him to have written his first book, and he was real excited that, you know, whatever, I'm just, again, just a stupid former pothead from Boston, but a New York Times bestseller, and I co-authored it with him. So we had, we've already had it translated into multiple languages. Nathan led the present prime minister of Albania, he led his assistant to the Lord, as well as two very prominent parliamentarians. And this has been translated into uh, Albanian, Macedonian, Albanian, Serbian, whatever it is. And, um, and so when the Afghan, U.S. pullout from Afghanistan happened, and it was clear that it was going to be a nightmare of refugees and so forth, these guys had read this, and a big part of the book is dealing with the issue of how the Lord throughout history has allowed massive refugee movements and displacements, which causes all kinds of disruption and problems. He's used it for his own redemptive purposes to further the gospel every time. Like every time one of these things that politically you go, this is a nightmare, it usually, I shouldn't say every single time, usually results in the Lord furthering his purposes. So seeing that and understanding that and sort of tracing the biblical history of that and then that uh, even outside of, you know, biblical history just into modern times, um, that's a big part of the book. So the assistant to the prime minister had read the book. A couple of these parliamentarians had read it. So when the Afghan refugee crisis happened, as a result of reading this, Albania was the first country in the world that openly said, we're going to take Afghan refugees. Wow. And I was like, you're kidding me, like... The stuff that we write actually is changing, you know, is, is affecting things. And so I think I've got, yeah, a little video here. Um, and I'm going to tell more about this as we move forward. But there's just a, a quick little um, video. Why are you here in Albania? Because we were uh, from Taliban and uh, our life was in danger in Afghanistan. I have father and mother. They are back in Afghanistan and their life is in danger. They didn't make out. The situation is worse than you than the world could imagine. Because we are not sure uh, for, for our future. There is no education system, nothing. Everything destroyed by Taliban. That's why we are here, to make our future better. I was a student. This was my last year. This was my last year in high school. We raised our voices. We raised our voice several times. That's Afghanistan is in danger, but no one hears us. Even didn't act like we are humans. We need help. Afghanistan needs help. So as you can see at the bottom, it actually says Catalytic Ministries. Um, and I'll tell you the reason for that. We actually made two different videos. Um, so now I want to highlight FAI, and then I'm going to highlight GCM, and then I'll come back to this. I've got, uh, I think, two more videos. So FAI, 
is um, Frontier Alliance International is presently headquartered in the Golan Heights in Israel. Now, this was started uh, by a friend of mine named Dalton. His name, well, Dalton, his, yeah, Thomas is his middle name, but he uses Dalton Thomas. Again, everybody in the Middle East just has sort of a thin, very thin firewall. Um, so I met Dalton about 12 years ago, and he reached out to me and he said, hey, I'm a young guy living over here in, um, in uh, uh, New Zealand. He was at sort of a YWAM missionary house of prayer kind of thing. And he said, I'm working on a book that incorporates some of your material, some of Mike Bickle's material, some stuff from a guy named Art Katz. Does anyone know who Art Katz is? Um, he, he passed away a little over a decade ago, um, Jewish brother. And I said, this is amazing. I've been waiting for someone to do something like that. And, he, and he, he was only in his mid to late 20s, just a young guy. He said, I'll send you the book. I'm just wondering if you'd consider endorsing it. And I looked at I looked at the manuscript, and I was like, this was written by a kid in his 20s? Like, this is on par with, like, any classic book that I'd ever read. So he and I initially became theological friends. Now, the subject of the book is, the title is... Um, uh, the Controversy of Zion in the Time of Jacob's Trouble. So the book is focusing on probably one of the most unpopular themes in the Bible, particularly themes within biblical prophecy, which is the fact that the scriptures are very clear that before Jesus returns, the current state of Israel will yet go through another time of tribulation that is unparalleled in human history. What that means is actually something, yea, even worse than the Holocaust. It's unavoidable. In terms of understanding what the scriptures say, you can't avoid it, in my opinion. It's clear. It's everywhere. It permeates the prophets. And it happens just before the return of Jesus, just before everything is fixed. Israel goes through one final cycle of chastisement. No one wants to talk about this. Because in the segments of the church that believes in biblical prophecy, they're very pro-Israel, which I am. Um, but you, you don't want to say, hey, there's, there's all this horrible stuff that's yet to come. And there's also a dimension to where even in the messianic community in Israel, so those are the Jews that believe, there's kind of this mentality, um, it's kind of a victorious mentality where the state of Israel itself is almost given kind of like messianic, overtones the idea is like it was established god did it things are just going to get better 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 eventually revival and then jesus returns but they kind of cut out the tribulation they cut out this time of jacob's trouble and understandably i mean they're raising their families there it's a very real and emotional thing but in any case so here's the irony is the school that i moved out to and i probably shouldn't get into all this but the school that I moved to come to in Kansas City, one of the teachers there is this Jewish messianic guy named Avner Bosky. Incredible guy, speaks like several languages, an amazing teacher. He's the one that turned me on to what I'll say the Israel centricity of the entire biblical narrative. Well, he was a huge, um, he had huge problems with Art Katz. So when my friend releases his book that I endorsed, my teacher, this incredibly influential guy in my life, like just laid into my other friend. So one friend attacks another friend publicly. 
and one is much older and highly respected, and another one's kind of this young guy that nobody knows. And this is when I sort of really got to connect uh, with Dalton as I walked him walk through this sort of sudden storm of controversy, uh, much of which I had already walked through with just writing a book, and then all these prophecy people are like, that's stupid! And uh, you know, everything you're saying is ridiculous! And I was just like, I was just trying to write a little book and just, you know, like, I didn't think I was going to stir up all this controversy. And, um, and people that you know and look up to and respect for years, like these teachers that you're like, wow, this guy's amazing. And all of a sudden he sends you like this nasty email and you're like, he's a jerk. The guy's a total jerk, you know. Like, you know, just start dealing with And then other people are amazing um, and, and very kind and so forth. But so I watched the way that he dealt with this and we became good friends. So kind of skipping forward through our friendship and, and all the things that we're discussing. And I've got a real belief that the Middle East is sort of, he moved um, to Turkey, uh, gosh, this is like, I don't know, maybe 10, yeah, it's about 10 years now. And um, so he moved there with sort of a small team. And, um, and that first year or so was kind of disastrous. And then he and his wife had to come off the field for about two and a half years, and then they moved to Kansas City um, as they were kind of working on their marriage and so forth. And that's when he and I became really close friends because I kind of walked with him through that whole season and saw just sort of the humility with which he, you know, walked throughout this season and really just gave himself to his family and yada, yada, yada. So he and I became good friends. Well, so here's kind of skipping forward. Then after two and a half years off the field, he moves back to the Middle East, but he moves to northern Iraq. This is about six months after ISIS explodes out of Syria and just shocks the world, you know, with their brutality and, um, and again, brings up a small team up there to northern Iraq. Well, basically, so he's sitting there with the Kurdish people. So the Kurds are not Arab. They're not Turks. They're not Iranians. They're Kurds. Okay, now Americans would look at them and go, I don't know, they all look the same to me. And they get so upset, like, yeah, my wife says, because um, uh, I'm basically Italian. She's like, Italian, Iranian, what's the difference? They're all just big noses, dark skin. I'm just like, you racist! So, um, just kidding. But um, anyway, the Kurdish people are ethnically different. And when we broke, when the Western colonizing powers broke up the Middle East, the Kurds didn't get their own state. So they're scattered between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, and they're mistreated by everyone. The, the Persians mistreat them, the Arabs mistreat them, the, Tur the Turks very much mistreat them. And they have a saying because they live up there in the mountains. So think Mount Ararat, eastern Turkey, these massive mountains that spread all the way across the Zagros Mountains, all the way over there into um, northern Iran. They have a saying, the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. And you go, wow, like that sounds to me like a people that are perfectly ready to receive Jesus. You know, like the, the gospel is for the poor, for the rejected, for the marginalized, for the hated, for the outcasts. And, um, and so here's, you know, this evangelical missions organization up there in northern Iraq on the border of Iran. ISIS has taken over one of the major cities in northern Iraq, which is Mosul, which is ancient Nineveh. Mosul today, it's Nineveh. And so in kind of strategizing and saying, like, how can we reach our Kurdish neighbors, the Kurds started fighting ISIS. And they were going to try to liberate Mosul from ISIS. Now, again, the whole world was terrified of ISIS. They were sending out all these horrible videos. 
And it was just like brutal stuff. Like, you know, like, and they, they were very good with their video. They were very good with video production. It was like, you know, like kids blowing up frogs with firecrackers when they're kids, except they were doing that with humans and filming it in slow motion and putting videos out for the purpose of just terrifying people. But in the process, here's what's amazing. Um, we presently have roughly 4,000 Protestant missionaries, roughly in the range of about 4,000 that are in the Islamic world. Within a few months, ISIS recruited 30,000 kids from all over the world to leave everything and to join. They almost multiplied our total missionary numbers almost 10 times in just a few months. And much of it was because people believed that what was happening was prophecy being fulfilled according to the Islamic template. So you think of the power of prophecy there. Anyway, so Dalton's looking at this and he goes, our model, one of his heroes is Hudson Taylor that penetrated the, you know, the inland China um, deal using medical missions as the gateway to access this very difficult place. So everyone is blessed when you come in and serve them medically. And so the Kurds are basically just salt of the earth people farmers and regular folks and they just rotate into the military like two weeks at a time fight two weeks go back to their job their kids and family and they had a hundred thousand uh, soldiers on the northern front they had one ambulance at the time and so FAI started raising money and started buying them ambulances and all they really were was transport vehicles that could drive them the two hours to the to the hospital that was in the city of Erbil the guys were like bleeding out, just getting shot in the arm. You know, like they just didn't have, uh, you know, the capacity. So he goes like, how can we love our neighbors? Now, as a rule, generally evangelical missions groups probably shouldn't partner with Middle Eastern militaries. That's usually a good rule. When they're fighting ISIS, it's pretty clear who the bad guys are, right? But you still got to be careful. But so we said, look, we don't want to like get involved in combat. But the bottom line is if these are our neighbors... Okay, if these are our neighbors and they're fighting a war because it's for their own survival and they're dying, maybe we can help them medically. And that's how it all started, is to bring in doctors and medics, training them medically and so forth. Well, next thing you know, um, and we went up and met with some of the commanders, uh, almost like the tribal leaders on the northern front, to ask permission to do all this. And so we really kind of did it very proper Middle Eastern style. You know, it was like a big tent with tea and all the elders. And, and they turned to me because I was the oldest one and asked me to, you know, ask permission all this. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, but in any case, we did it very proper Middle Eastern style, got all of the permission. They knew who we were. The big guy, um, you know, gives the word. And then once they saw that we were willing to risk our lives to help them, then we, they started taking us across the red line into the war zone as they started liberating Mosul. So it just gave this little... Christian ministry, tremendous credit. Next thing you know, even the Iraqi military was, um, was bringing FAI volunteers into the war zones. And uh, again, just doing medical stuff, you know, not, not engaging in any form of combat, but just helping them. And then when the people started leaving, so now these are the, the Sunnis that partnered with ISIS. We started receiving them as they were coming out. And, and so give, blessing everyone is the point. It was not really like we were siding with one side, although clearly against ISIS, but blessing everyone. And so then skip forward. Over in the state of Israel, 
you've got this guy named um, Marco Moreno, and he was the head of the um, 504, which is the Army Intelligence. So not Mossad, but basically the Army version of the Mossad, the, the Army Intelligence. He's a spy, lifelong spy. He's, he's about two years younger than me. And, um, and he was cruising up along the border of Syria, northern Israel, and he sees this Sunni guy up against the fence. Now, you never see someone right up against the fence, but he knows that Syria is in the middle of a civil war. So in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, Syria melted down into a civil war, and the Bashar Assad, Bashar al-Assad government, they're Alawites, so they're this kind of weird sect. Like They're like um, Mormons or whatever. And they're, and they're barrel-bombing the Protestants in the south. That's the Sunnis. I'm just kidding. So the Sunnis in the south are like mostly congregated down in the south. And some of them are like uh, ISIS, but some of them are basically more just like freedom fighters. And there's sort of a spectrum. And so what would happen is if you partner with these people, everyone goes, well, you're supporting ISIS, just like John McCain. You go, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Yes, they're Sunnis. Yes, they're freedom fighters. The bottom line is, I can tell you, my buddies that I get breakfast with on Saturdays that I all know from church, if you started barrel bombing their neighborhoods, they would be freedom fighters too. In fact, like their neighbors aren't even being barrel bombed and they're already kind of freedom fighters. I'm just kidding. But you get my point. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you need to be careful in terms of making assumptions about teams. Middle East is an incredibly complex place. So this spy, this head of the army intelligence unit, just sees this guy um, up against the fence and he walks over and he speaks fluent Arabic because he basically lived as a pretend Arab for like three years. Um, I won't get into all that. He walks up and he says, hey, what's going on? And they strike up a little conversation. And, um, and basically, he says, okay, so typical Israeli pragmatist, you know, he looks at this guy and he says, what do you guys need? And he says, we need help. We need medical help. We're down here, you know, mostly as refugees in the south of the country because the government is attacking us. And that's what we need is we need medical help. And he says, okay, here's what, here's what I'm going to offer you. And he, he starts working out a deal with the Israeli government, he says, we'll sneak a few of you guys across the fence from Syria into Israel. We'll take you to the hospital and start giving you like your women and children. That's the idea, it's women and children. We'll give you medical treatment. You guys give us intel and you keep the southern border peaceful. So he's thinking purely in terms of Israeli self-interest, again, a pragmatist, but he starts blessing them. And this goes on for like two years. And this sort of very hardened, I won't say hardened, but cynical Israeli, you know, intelligence guy, his heart starts softening to these Sunnis, you know, as their children and women giving birth and just everything. And he starts going like, this is like a really good thing that we're doing. And it was called Operation Good Neighbor. So then he hears about these crazy Americans over in Iraq that are doing all this stuff with the Peshmerga, that's the Kurdish military, which means those who face or run toward death. <laughs> It's like a super awesome name. Um, and he hears about these crazy Americans, and so he kind of reaches out through some mutual um, contacts, and um, he reaches out to my buddy Dalton, and he says, hey, um, and they're kind of feeling each other out because Dalton thinks he's Mossad, and he thinks Dalton's CIA, and they're kind of, you know, it's like when you go to buy something off of Craigslist. 
you like walk up, you're like, oh, so is this the table that I'm buying? And then you, you pull out your knife and you kind of circle it. Like, okay, I'm going to put the money down. No, so they're kind of, they're um, checking each other out and they start talking. And basically he says, look, it's great what we're doing here with the Syrians, but what we need is we need to send people into Syria and, and establish a few medical clinics. And, um, and he says, can you help us? And Dalton's like, we'll get you as many people as you need. Like, we can get, he goes, because we can't get any Jewish doctors to do it. He goes, we'll get you Christian doctors. They'll go in. And I'll be honest with you. I was kind of like, you know, so by this time, I, I was part of the, the board um, of FAI. And I'm going, like, really? Like, we're just going to send people into Syria, which was considered at the time the most dangerous country in the world? And not only that, but some of the people that volunteered, like, some of them are like, like these like little Amish girls, like 22-year-old. And I'm going, and but they're like gung-ho. And I was like, well, gosh, if they're doing it, I don't feel tough at all, you know? <laughs> and um, But so it was a beautiful thing. So for about a year, um, FAI establishes this partnership. And I want to think about this. This is historical. Even, open, not secret, not sort of subtle, open evangelical Christian missions organization partnering for the first time with a, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. If you guys want, like you can actually, that way you'll hear much better, um, to serve Sunni Muslims. Like just think of that triangle, like such a strange thing. Christians, a, a missions organization partnering with the IDF to serve Muslims in Syria. And uh, just a beautiful thing. Um, and so we established two different medical clinics and the stories and the people that did that are still to this day just my heroes, and um, and several of them are still uh, involved, um, serving with FAI. Others, you know, obviously came off the field. But after about a year, there was sort of a Russian deal that was brokered, and we had to leave suddenly in the in just like the middle of the night type of thing. Um, had to pull out, and so I mean, it was just like the whole thing was so beautiful. I went up one night when we were sending in a doctor. There's this young guy named Taki. He was, I think he was from um, Peru. And he had just got married. And his wife was pregnant. They were like newlyweds. And he wanted to tithe his first three months of his marriage in Syria. And he spoke zero English, zero Arabic. And we go up there that night as the IDF opens the gate and this little Peruvian guy hops on the back of the truck as the IDF soldiers escort him into Syria. And when he did that, one of the other gals came out for a few minutes. And it was just like, I don't know, just the beauty of the whole thing, the relational network. And so one of the gals that was there, one of the leaders comes out and she says hi to everybody. And, um, you know, she's been in there, maybe comes out every month or something. And one of the young Israeli soldiers comes over and, you know, he's probably 21. And he's like, uh, let me ask you a question. Why do you do this? You know what I mean? It's like out of an evangelistic like book. Like, <laughs> let me explain to you why I do this. You know? And she just opens up and starts talking you know, immediately. The guy's name was, was uh, Moshe, Moses. And then he said, he's listening and he goes, you know what I think? I think God is going to let them all die. He says, um, I think we have to worry about our own problems. And it's just amazing how internationally the same little cliches and sentiments that you hear, um, you hear here, you hear there, is like, kind of like, let them die. We have enough problems of our own here in Israel. 
And she was like, well, no, I mean, you know, like, I get that, but God loves them too. And this, you know, and so it was just a beautiful, these type of conversations that happened and so on and so forth. Anyway, so in the aftermath, after we had to pull out of um, Syria, so FAI still has, they're called gateway centers. So the way FAI is structured, it's very decentralized, which means that, um, and Dalton, by the way, he was the founder and the director. He has since sort of um, stepped out of the role of director, and there's a friend of ours that was the chairman of the board. His name is Jeff Henderson. He has stepped in as the new director. He's a very seasoned pastor, and he's, you know, retired from being a pastor, and so he's he basically travels all over the world and, and just sort of pastors and, and oversees this. Dalton continues to teach, and he's a visionary, but he's mostly focusing on films and creative stuff, and he's doing a little bit of, of leadership, but it's, um, it's actually the ultimate goal of any organization when it starts to be able to pass it on so that it's not contingent on one particular person. So it's been a good thing that we've been able to begin that sort of transition so that's something that, you know, kind of survives much more long term. And so what we do is, um, well, I'll get to it, is we create films. Because years back, I'm talking like 2013 when... Um, the Arab Spring all started. Dalton and I were in um, Cairo, and we were talking, and uh, I'll just tell you this. So we were talking of going like, okay, you know, like, you know, we want to change the world. Like, we want to start a revolution. We have a message that we want the church to grasp. How do we do that? You know, like, I've written a couple books, and, you know, if you're reading a book, like, how can we do this? And, we, and so we started looking at this news organization called Vice. Do you guys know, have you ever heard of Vice? No one? It's not big here. What's the name of the church? Christian Life Church. Yeah, Vice News is not huge at Christian Life Church. It's a super liberal news organization that started out as a British skateboarding magazine. They went on to become an online news reporting organization to where 10 years ago, 10 years ago, kids, I say kids, but anyone 30 and under that got their news more kids 30 and under got their news from vice than abc nbc and cbs combined okay so i was looking at that and going they put everything online for free yet they just had like a 40 billion dollar investment this was 10 years ago because they they're very creative in the way they do things and they were doing some of the most cutting edge reporting like these little mini documentaries and things they actually sent a reporter into raqqa which was the capital of isis within the first week when isis took over people are getting beheaded left and right and they've got a reporter in there with a secret camera interviewing people i'm like this is real reporting this guy's risking getting beheaded to put out a little mini documentary and i and i said if we're not using film to promote our messaging, we're already, this was 10 years ago, I said, we're, we're already five years behind. So we both started training and learning how to use film and, and different things for the purpose of furthering the gospel. And so this is much of what FAI has done is we've created a whole, I think we have like eight films now. And the purpose of this is we give them away for free, but to raise awareness, to raise funds, and then give that to the folks that are on the field. So we've got two gateway centers in northern Iraq. There's one in... Um, this area, this city called, or town called Rawunduz. There's another one over in Dohuk, which is a pretty major city. And each one of these probably has about 10 different workers. A lot of them are medical workers. And it's all done very much in the open. There's no like, oh, we're, we're just here to teach English 
and then like 15 years later your neighbors go you guys are missionaries you know what i mean like it's like it's very like we're very open and, and above what we do and there's another gateway center in cyprus there's another gateway center now we have um the same gal that came out is um that i didn't mention by name is in syria and there's a few other doctors that are up there in, in syria as well and then the the headquarters, so to speak, where Dalton lives, again, is in the Golan Heights in Israel. Now, here's what's amazing that has happened after Operation Good Neighbor is in Israel today, Israel does not like Christian ministries in their land, especially if they're going to evangelize Jews. Because to them, that is the end of their people. Like, if, like a, for a Jew to become a Christian, that's like us, you know, whatever. It's like a Christian becomes, you know, Muslim. It's like, okay, you've just, you're no longer Christian. Now, they don't understand you can still be Jewish and worship the Jewish Messiah, um, but to them it's an abandonment of Jewish identity. And so they're okay with Christian ministries in Israel as long as they are not evangelistic, especially toward the Jews, and if they're just supporting the state of Israel. So there's really four grandfathered in ministries there's only four in the country that have this sort of special status where their people can have almost like residency status like student so they don't have to leave the country every three months and get a new visa and the thing of it is is most of these ministries are kind of uh, kind of aging out like one of their big recruitment things is they'll they'll raise money to help um, holocaust survivors there's not a lot of holocaust survivors left and so they haven't, the, the, the state has not given any Christian ministry this special exemption to where their people can stay in the country long term and work until FAI. We got it for the first time in I don't know how many years, like 25 years or something. Like it's a huge deal. And how did we do it? Well, basically, Marco Moreno, the IDF intelligence guy, he had never, he partners with, you know, FAI, and he goes, like, these people are amazing. Like, these people are soldiers. Like, these people are warriors. This little Amish girl that's 22 that's going into Syria, sleeping in a bomb shelter and, you know, doing surgeries with, you know, like, the junk equipment that we're able to get across the border. Like, she's a soldier. And the respect was incredible. And he goes, and he had never met, again, you talk about the unreached peoples of the earth, most of Israel is unreached. You go, you got four million Christian tourists that go there every year, but the vast majority of Israelis never rub shoulders with an evangelical at all, never hear. And so he had never heard of an evangelical. The only Christians he knew were like the Pope people, you know, like in his, he's like the Catholics and, and most of them are anti-Israel. And he's like, okay, so what's an evangelical? He starts, and he goes, okay, so you're telling me what you guys are all about is planting churches among the Muslims, yeah, you want, to, you want to convert the Muslims to become Christians, yes. And then when they become Christians, they will love Israel. And they're like, yeah, ideally, that's, that's the plan. He's like, I'll help you guys. I'll help you guys do this as much as you want. And he goes, and I'll teach you how to do it right. Because he was a spy. He lived, again, as an Arab. He understands the nuances of Arab culture. He goes, I'll tell you how to do it so that you don't make all these dumb mistakes. So I will disciple you. Right? So this is now, and we hired him to be the director of FAI in Israel. And so the way things work in Israel, it's an incredible good old boy system, right? So um, eh, I'll tell the story, it's funny. Um, 
So we started in Amutah, which is an Israeli nonprofit, like 501c3. And so they needed an American signature on it. So I went there, and so we, it was, I was with Marco and Jeff, and we went into the lawyer's office. And Marco has all this paper, and he hands it to his lawyer friend. And the lawyer friend, you know, he gets, he's looking at it. He's reading it for a minute, and then he goes, this, I, you know, I don't speak Hebrew, so, I mean, for the most part. And he just goes, Marco. Marco goes, <laughs> and he goes, and he signs it. So it was like, translated was like, Marco, what the hell is this? Marco goes, hey, you know me. And he goes, ah, whatever, and he signs it. And then when he goes out, Marco goes, I like this lawyer. He doesn't ask too many questions. And this is how everything gets done in Israel. So we hire a war hero to be the director of the Christian Evangelical Missions Organization. And now we've got this special residency status. And it's just a beautiful thing. But I want you to think about the prophetic significance of this. Jeremiah chapter 1. Let me read it real quick. Because I think it's profound. I, I really do. Uh, oops. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse, I think it's like 9, uh, verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? He said, I see a boiling pot, a boiling cauldron. Now, every translation says facing away from the north. I think it's facing from the north. It's, I think it's just sort of a weird translation. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north. Disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. Everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and around its walls and against all the cities of Judah. So, again, talking about the time of Jacob's trouble, the scriptures talk about the surrounding nations gathering together against Israel. They come from the north. Jeremiah sees this boiling cauldron from the north, and it's about to tip and flood the land. That's sort of the picture that he has. I think it's profound that this young guy that I met, who's now 36, that I met um, all these years ago, you know, in his late 20s, his, his mid to late 20s, writing a book about the time of trouble that's coming to Israel, through all these divine circumstances, is now headquartered right in front of the boiling cauldron with his five kids, five children, and family. And that's actually the headquarters of this missions organization that also has a profound prophetic call to stand, not only to evangelize the Islamic world, but to stand with Israel. Mm -hmm. And I go, you could not have orchestrated things this way. To me, it's very profound. And so after COVID and all of the lockdowns and shutdowns, um, going forward, um, in many ways, Everything sort of like has sort of flowed down a little bit. It's about to ramp back up. And um, Dalton is starting, again, we've got a whole bunch of film projects, but he's starting something called The Lion, the, the, um, the Lion of Judah, which will kind of, the goal, our hope, is to sort of be like The Chosen. Like it'll be a whole series of films about all these Bible stories, but um, like Dalton does, kind of like Mel Gibson, very raw, real some of it maybe even offensive, a little bit elements to Christians, but just some really good film production is, is about to ramp up significantly, um, as well as some new missions projects and partnering with Israel. And so we continue to do in Israel what we've done elsewhere, which is to say, what do you need? 
not like hey we're here to help you we're here to say you know what do you need so um the idf the intelligence community absolutely believes the next major war is coming from lebanon and syria so right pretty close to the golan heights is a little town called kiryat shimona it's kind of like the drug corridor from lebanon mm. and um, very poor city and all the bomb shelters are like you know filled with trash and so they need a lot of bomb shelters and they expect another major deal to come so fai is raising money to build bomb shelters you know what i'm saying to do real things that are really needed and um and to bless israel with things that they need and then the goal is to start something long term even in gaza which would be similar to the operation good neighbor the idf would assist us but we'd be the ones going in in gaza they kind of know that the idf is helping us but really it's christians okay so i've talked a lot about fai um i i currently serve as the chairman of the board um and again you know some of my dearest friends and heroes are part of that but that's kind of a good summary um over in cyprus it's a big massive counter human trafficking um project that they're focusing on and there's only um oh i guess there's only several people there now you know like things are kind of a little bit down depleted after covid but we're getting ready to kind of do a big push and ramp back up now uh, those are the nations in yellow where uh fai is working again syria iraq israel and uh cyprus over here oh actually that's not cyprus this is so my bad i think what is that malta i don't know um anyway so here just um that's dr luis um from uh el salvador so he's been up in northern iraq with the kurds for the past several years um he was one of the doctors that initially went into syria um when we recruited him he was like El Salvador is like the most dangerous country in the world that's not at war. You know, so he's like Syria is like no problem. Um so we recruited there was a lot of Latino uh and Latina doctors that came in. So now I want to talk about Global Catalytic Ministries. Their website is catalyticministries.com. Catalytic Ministries is headquartered in Tehran, Iran, and we're in um Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Turkey, again, uh Cyprus, Saudi Arabia, and a few other places, but we've got people all over the place. Now, this gets a little confusing if you followed my ministry. Again, as I just laid it out, I've been trying to use my platform to champion all these different ministries. Now, it gets a little confusing because I'm currently the chairman of the board of FAI, and for a few years I was the chairman of the board of GCM. It gets even more confusing because FAI Studios, the film department of FAI, Dalton and I, several years ago we went and we met with a bunch of the leaders of the underground Iranian church because that's what GCM is, and we made a couple films called Sheep Among Wolves 1 and 2. So FAI made these films Sheep Among Wolves about GCM to where we highlight the work. Now, here's what's beautiful about all this. We have So it really started in Iran. Um and I can't tell the whole story because it's being recorded, but basically there was a movement in Iran for some years and then when um Mahmoud Ahmadinejad came into power um in 2005, he really started cracking down on the churches and persecution started kicking in a pretty significant way. and a lot of the open evangelism that they used to do just dried up and stopped. 
So they had to adjust and modify their methodology, their approach, and they started using a method called DMM, Disciple Making Model, which works great in high persecution area, sort of in the underground. And then what happened, which is amazing, is, okay, so in Afghanistan, okay, again, number one worst persecute, difficult nation in the world right now for Christians, the majority of the people there are Pashtun, ethnically Pashtu. So that's the Taliban. The Taliban are Pashtu. Well, there's a few other minority groups in the country, such as the Tajiks from Tajikistan in the north, as well as <coughs> a group called the uh, Hazara. The Hazara, if you were to look at them, they look a little more Asian, like, like Genghis Khan um, type of thing, and they are the persecuted minorities. Okay, They get really mistreated horribly. So... Um, basically the majority, and well, then they speak, okay, the Hazara speak Dari. Dari is basically a dialect of Farsi, which is Iranian, Pers Persian. Farsi, the F and the P are the same, Parsi, like in the Bible, Parsa. Um, and so, because the Hazara basically speak Persian, the church in Iran has been growing so rapidly and it's so strong in recent years that they have actually been evangelizing the Hazara in the country next door. So you think about that. Iran is actually becoming an evangelistic missionary sending nation. Like that's an amazing thing. Skip forward to the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, which I'll just say this will go down in retrospect as the single greatest foreign, foreign policy catastrophe of our lifetimes all of our lifetimes. You go, like, worse than Vietnam? Yeah, like, we will come to see this as... An now, again, I want to be fair. Yes, it was initiated or pre-planned under Trump, but it went on and it was carried out in an absolutely nightmarish way um, under this current administration. Well, so here we were with this vibrant, growing underground church that we're overseeing in Afghanistan, and all of a sudden this massive thing happens... And about half of our leaders are desperate, saying, like, we want to get out. So I'm just going to tell this and sort of wrap this up. We, um, let me see here. Yeah, I'll tell this. So we went, whenever there's a big thing in the news, like, um, I won't get into all the history of it, but basically we, I was able to reach out to Kaylee McEnany, right, former um, press secretary for Trump, and she did some, mentioning mentioning uh, what we're doing on um, Fox News. And so we got some really great publicity, et cetera, et cetera. We raised about $4 million. We raised like $4 million for what was, you know, happening. So we had this really three prongs to that. One, we started a massive rescue operation to get people out, mostly Christians, mostly our leaders. That was the plan because, again, probably half – uh, wanted to leave. We also um, were doing our best to feed those that were staying. I'll show you some, some pictures of that. And then um, just to strengthen the existing church that's there, you know, that wanted to stay and, and so on and so forth. So then I'll just tell this. So then um, this ministry, ministry that's job is to, um, well, it's to hold ministries accountable. I want to be fair. 
there's a lot of corruption out there. But basically, this guy reached out to us seven days before Christmas and said, here's all these questions. He said, can you get back to me within the next few days? I want to get this article up before Christmas. And he literally asked for, like, the leader's name. We're like, we're not going to give you our leader's name. He lives in Tehran, you know. Like, do you understand what we do? Like, this is like, and he got upset because we didn't answer his questions. He wrote this big, like, article inferring that we're just fraudulent. You know, that we're not doing any of this stuff. We're not involved in Afghanistan. So I was smart enough before any of this happened. I go, guys, we just raised $4 million. Like, whenever there is a, whenever there is a huge issue in the news, there's going to be, like, major fraud. We need to document. We need to document every single thing that we do. We need every penny we have to be squeaky clean. And so we did that. So even though it was a much higher security um, risk, um, I had every time we gave food to one of the families, I said, you want to take a picture of them with the food and the family. And so I had the foresight beforehand. And it's GCM, for what it's worth, is, is such a super solid organization. But I was kind of like almost happy that this guy did this. So then after he did that article, I was like, hey, to one of my other buddies that does video. I said, can you just throw together this video just to kind of like once someone does an article like that, you go, I don't want to say it's unethical, but to me it's unethical. Like you don't say, hey, give me all this information. or I'm going to put out this article two days before Christmas that accused you guys of being frauds, even though you're working in the underground church because you didn't answer all these like questions that are really unfair to ask anyway. Not like, hey, let's talk about this. Anyway, so here's um, just another quick video. I think it's only a minute. Oh, whoops, hold on. Actually, let me skip forward. Yeah. So we've literally got like literally well over a thousand pictures like this and I just said just throw up a whole bunch just so <laughs> and almost overwhelmingly these are the Hazara peoples like the poorest of the poor super um, persecuted Christian families people are like selling their kids that's how bad it is just to eat So now I'm going to tell you a little bit more of the backstory here that's so beautiful. And um, because all of these different ministries, they're separate ministries, but they're all friends. 
when the crisis happened in Afghanistan. Dalton at FAI said he gave the word. He said, listen, I, I want every penny that FAI raises this month, I want to give it all to GCM. No ministry does that. Like, sometimes uh, be, being in ministry world, as long as I have now and seeing the way things, sometimes it feels less like a bunch of ministries and it feels more like a bunch of mafia families. Like, I hate to say that, but it's really like, it's weird how the stuff that happens behind the scenes. And I just thought it was so beautiful to have this open-handed, like, you know, let's just bless them and let's just give to them. And then going back to the Albanian thing where we brought, Albania brought in about 300 refugees and Nathan Graves set up this beautiful project to teach them English. Um, again, this little Baptist ministry that probably their budget each year is probably like $50,000. I'm on the board uh, of Antecessor as well. I said to um, the leader of GCM, I said, hey, um, in order for those guys to do their refugee thing in Albania, they need about a quarter million dollars. And he just said, yeah, just tell the accountant to give it to them. And so we gave, we, so GCM, so here's GCM that received the blessing of FAI that, you know, gave this massive donation to GCM. And then GCM gave a quarter million dollars to Antecessor because it was related to Afghanistan. We didn't want to spend on anything that was not related to Afghanistan. And it's just been a beautiful partnership to see all these ministries working together. Nobody cares about promoting themselves over another one in competition. Who's going to get credit? It's just like, let's rise to meet the current ministry challenge that's in front of us. It's been, it's been a really hard year since the Afghan pullout. And then what happened is the leader of the underground church in Iran, he, his wife, his mother-in-law, and all his leaders all got COVID about the, the week of the pullout. And they were super sick, and then um, a couple of them died. And so he was just going through this massive crisis. And so then I just said, look, I'm going to take this off your hands. And so then I've been in charge of a lot of the, um, the Afghanistan, and it's still going on to this day. And I'm, you know, texting with all of these families and these former special immigration visa holders that worked with the American military. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's just been an ongoing project. Now, I'm going to end it here. Um, show you one last quick little three-minute video. So about two years ago, a bunch of the leaders of the underground church in Iran specifically said, we feel as though it's time for us to start sharing some of the lessons and insights and wisdom that we've learned, growing one of the fastest growing Christian movements in the world under one of the most repressive, difficult governments. We want to start training those in the West, in the United States, in Europe, Australia, etc., etc., because they said, we specifically feel as though the Lord is showing us that persecution is coming to the West. Mm -hmm. And they said, it's coming quickly, like much more quickly than you guys realize. And we've seen it all, obviously, with the recent elections and all the deplatforming. And much of that did revolve around politics, but it's much more than that. It's, you know, if you don't affirm my gender as a rainbow dragon, then I'll sue you, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just like the insanity of the world that we're in now. And so they, GCM has launched something called Sheep Among Wolves, which is basically the Western branch of GCM. So we've got a little um, video here, which is just a word from a few of the women. And, um, and I'm going to end it right here. حتما خیلی از شما فیلم گوستاندان در میان گرک های دورو دیدید. 
در واقع این فیلم داستان کلیسای زیرزمینی تو ایران و کل خواهر میان است با وجود زندگی زیر این حکومت ظالمانه اسلامی ما نه تنها به زندگی ادامه میدیم بلکه سریعتر از هر ملت دیگه در جهان در حال رشد هستیم میخواییم دلایل اصلی موفقیت خودمون رو با شما در میون بذاریم اول عیسی مسیح در یوحنا 15 گفت آنکه در من میماند و من در او میوه بسیار میآورد زیرا که جدا از من هیچ نمیتوانید بکنید عیسی مسیح تاکه و مشاخه هستیم پس پایه و اساس هر کاری که میکنیم دعاست ما اهل دعا هستیم پس ثمرات زیادی میاریم اگر کلیسای قرب میخوان ثمرات زیادی بیارن باید خونه دعا باشن دوم که عیسی گفت اگه مرا دوست داری از احکام من اطاعت میکنی عیسی گفت نه تنها شاگردی باشیم که هر روز سلیبش رو برمیداره بلکه شاگرد هم بسازیم ما نباید فقط خودمون به مسیح ما داشته باشیم و فقط خودمون رو مسیح بدونیم ما باید اطاعت کردن از مسیح و شاگردسازی رو جدی بگیریم سومی که خداوند گفت کسانی که اسرائیل رو برکت هم برکت میدن و کسانی که لعنت کنن لعنت میدونن و حالا از طریق عیسی پادشاه اسرائیل همه ملت ها زیر برکت هم چه باور کنید چه باور نکنید اینجا توی ایران برای کلیسای اسرائیل دعا میشه و اینکه دوستشون دارن ما باور داریم به وعده خدا برای نجات اسرائیل و اینکه میدونیم که درسته و خدا اشتباه نمیکنه و همه ما داریم برای نجات اسرائیل دعا میکنیم چهارم هر کاری میکنیم میدونیم که عیسی مسیح به زودی برمیگردون مشتاقانه منتظر بازگشتش هستیم و مولانا تا عیسی مسیح به زودی, به زودی برگرد رو فریاد میزنیم و بازگشت مسیح رو تسریم میکنیم و آخرین چیزی که میخوام بگم خداوند به من نشون داد که آزار رو در خواهر میانه تجربه میکنیم و همینطور در آمریکا و اروپا غرب هم آمار زمانیه که کلیسا باید آماده باشه برای اون چیزی که در آینده هست اما در حال حاضر دم در هستش اگر میخواین کلیسای زیرزمینی رو حمایت کنید از طریق جیستین یا اگر میخواین با so yeah I'm gonna just end it right there obviously I can keep telling stories forever do you want me just to do you want to have do any Q&A or just how do you want to wrap it up um, I want you to pray for us yeah. for sure um, we could yeah we could do why don't you come on up with me and we'll, we'll both pray so father is um, as we wrap up um, kind of just that overview and stories and personal stories Again, down here in, how do you say it, Tonkawa? Tonkawa. Tonkawa, <laughs> Oklahoma. Father, we all are just as much a part of the story, just as integral to this whole machine, this body that you've made. We ask that you would give us insight and understanding um, and direction individually and as a church in terms of how we can partner with what you're doing throughout the earth, whether it's to connect with any one of these ministries or any number of other ministries throughout the earth. But Lord, that you would put that spirit in us that has a passion to see your purposes accomplished first. 
that we lay down our own um, uh, our own ambitions or or you know need for credit or any of those things, but that we would be a people that would yearn and burn and desire to see your worth exalted throughout the earth, to, that your name would be known, that the unreached would hear, the unreached would be given an opportunity, that um, that those that are walking and groping in darkness would see the light, that you would bring in a mighty harvest as a result of even just our weak actions, our prayers, partnerships. We ask that you would guide us, show us how we can be involved. Show us our, our role in the story, that it's not just something that we're hearing about, that it's a story that we're part of, that we're participating in, that we're integral players in. And we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you that you saved each one of us. We thank you that you did open our eyes, that you snatched me out of the pit, that you snatched us all out of the pit. We ask that you would keep us until the day that you break open, rip the sky open in blazing fire with all of your angels. We ask that you would keep us, that you would keep our family members, that you would keep our children. We ask that you would strengthen this community Strengthen the leaders for Josh and his wife and for all the um, elders. We ask that you would continue to strengthen this community that, that here in, how do you say it? Tonkawa. Tonkawa. That, um, that your body here in Tonkawa would be a, a bright and shining light and that it would, its impact would go out to the ends of the earth. We thank you that you you love using um, the weak, you know, uh, a stupid former pothead like me, and uh, a little church in Tonkwa um, for your glory. This is the type of thing that you love to use. We thank you for this in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Right. Thank you. you say sometimes you can pull it off. I think you're a pretty good speaker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny.